This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, (laughs) and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Thank you, and welcome to the show. You know, I'm sure we've all known someone, perhaps several people, who have become slaves to the bottle. Alcoholism is a terrible disease, and for those in the public eye, it must be all that much more difficult to deal with. I wonder how many people knew, other than those in the production crew, that Marion Jordan, otherwise known as Molly from Fibber McGee and Molly, suffered with this malady. In fact, she took a protracted absence from the show from November of 1937 to April 1939 to deal with that lifelong battle with booze. Although this was attributed to fatigue in public statements at the time, but when she was well, the show was very strong in contending for the ratings. Now, keep in mind, the series ran from 1935 to 1956, The title characters were created and portrayed by Jim and Marion Jordan, real-life husband and wife team that had been working in radio since the 1920s. Fibber McGee and Molly, which followed up the Jordans' previous radio sitcom, Smackout, followed the adventures of a working-class couple, the habitual storyteller Fibber McGee, and his sometimes terse but always loving wife, Molly, living among their numerous neighbors and acquaintances in the community of Wistful Villa or that is Wistful Vista. As with most radio comedies of the era, Fibber McGee and Molly featured an announcer, house band, and vocal quartet for interludes. At the peak of the show's success in the 1940s, it was adapted into a string of feature films. Tonight's show was aired in 1942, so we're going to be hearing them at the peak of their radio success. Here's the episode entitled... Fibber writes a song. The Johnson Wax Program with Fibber McGee and Molly. The makers of Johnson's Wax and Johnson's Self-Polishing Glow Coat present Fibber McGee and Molly, written by Don Quinn, with songs by the King's Men and music by Billy Mills. The show opens with Swonderful.
year, we're probably going to have more gardens in this country than ever before. You'll soon see many of your neighbors working out in their yards, taking care of young carrots and cabbages and beets. Of course, it's a good idea. It helps the individual families save, and it helps the country conserve. But what has gardening got to do with Johnson's self-polishing glow coat? Well, I'll tell you. First, if your linoleum floors are protected with glow coat, you'll save hours of time during the year, and that time you can very profitably use in your vegetable patch. Glow coat needs no rubbing or buffing. Self-polishing, you just apply and let dry. Second, when you come in from working in the garden, your feet just might be a little dirty. But if your kitchen floor is protected with glow coat, you won't worry a bit. Glow coat guards the floor against wear, and soiled places are cleaned in a jiffy with a damp cloth. Now, I hope I've made it clear that people with gardens should all use Johnson's self-polishing glow coat on their floors. Fibber McGee is writing a song. (laughs) That's all, brother. (laughs) Now meet Fibber McGee and Molly. Well, how you doing, dearie? Great. I feel just like Stephen Foster. Only he didn't have a typewriter. <laughs> well, that may make you even with Stephen, but I'll bet Foster was faster. <laughs> What's the name of your corny little cadenza? It ain't corny, and it's got a wonderful title. The Defense Stamped Stomp. Oh. <laughs> that ain't cooking with gas. I'll eat it raw. <laughs> not bad. Not bad at all. Are you going to write the music, too? No. Nah, Billy Mills offered to do it, and I didn't want to hurt his feelings. Well, uh, why don't you get somebody else to do the words, too, and save my feelings? <laughs> Frankly, I'm kind of leery of your lyrics. Uh, don't worry. I got a wonderful start. Though I got to fix up the verse some more yet. Well, how does it go? Well, it ain't exactly right yet, but I'm on the track. So far, it goes something like this. There's a long, long trail of winding. Wait it, a minute. Huh? Wait a minute. That's been used. It has? Sure. You mean somebody swiped this already? No, no. That's a song from the last war. You remember that. Say, it did sound kind of familiar at that. Sure. Oh, well, I'll throw it out. I got plenty of ideas. How about this? Wait a minute, McGee. Huh? On second thought, I don't like your title, The Defense Stamp Stomp. Why, that's the best part of it. Why, I know, but I read in the paper where they're going to start calling them war bonds. We're going to stop defending and start fighting. Oh, all right. So we change the title to the War Stamp Stomp. <laughs> that gets that old fighting spirit into it. As it is, I think it's kind of offensive anyway. Well, yes. <laughs> yes, it is. In fact, I think it's one of the most offensive songs I ever heard. <laughs> Gee, do you really? Yes, I do. Oh, thanks. (laughs) You ain't just saying that because you admire me. No. No, I'm not. I really think it's a very offensive song. Of course, I may not be so hot at popular songs. I'd probably be better at serious stuff. Matter of fact, I've been mauling over in my mind a ballad called Ballad for Americans. It'd it'd be great for somebody like, like Paul Robeson. Well, there is a song by that name, and Paul Robeson does sing it. 
Doggone it, that's always the way it is. Here I get these ideas, and just because I'm too busy to write them down at that particular minute, somebody always comes along... Hey, you better hide that song for a minute, McGee. This may be Gilbert and Sullivan. (laughs) Who? Gilbert and Sullivan. I heard of Sullivan. He's an old-time prizefighter. But who's Gilbert? Well, he wrote the Mikado. He did? Why, the dirty traitor. Just wait till I get... Now, now. Calm yourself, McGee. It's only Mayor Latrivia. Oh, come in, Latrivia. Hello, Mr. Mayor. Good day, Mr. McGee. Hello, McGee. Hi, city father. What's all the bother? <laughs> when, uh, when I was over here for dinner the other evening, McGee, I lost my Phi Beta Kappa key. Uh, did you find it by any chance? No. No, we didn't find any keys, Mr. Mayor. Did you lose your whole key ring or just the one key? Uh, just my Phi Beta Kappa key, Mrs. McGee. Oh. It was pinned on my vest. Pinned on your vest? That's a heck of a way to carry a key, Latrivia. How do you carry your money? Tied into a corner of your hanky? <laughs> Please, McGee, let's be sensible. A Phi Beta key is usually pinned on the vest. Well, uh, what was it a key to, Mr. Mayor? It wasn't a key to anything, Mrs. McGee. It was the visible symbol of my membership in the honorary scholastic fraternity, Phi Beta Kappa. Oh, a key to the frat house. (laughs) I didn't get it at first, Latrivia. I thought maybe... Apparently, McGee, you still don't get it. This key has no utilitarian purpose whatsoever. Well, then what good is it? For that matter, what good is that American Legion button your husband is wearing? What do you mean, what good is it, you big lint head? It shows I belong to the Legion. You think I wore it just to keep the wind from blowing through the buttonhole? Uh-huh, you see, the Legion button indicates your membership in the Legion. My Phi Beta Kappa key indicates my membership in Phi Beta Kappa. Is that plain enough, or shall I spell it for you? Understand, dearie? Sure. He means he can't get into the Five Beta Capsule Clubhouse without using his key. <laughs> they give all the members a key, and when they unlock the door... This key does not unlock any doors. Can't you get that fact through your Neanderthal noggin? <laughs> my what? Never mind. But, uh, please keep an eye out for my key, if you will. It's a small pin about a half an inch in diameter. Oh, you mean that's nope. what the pin looks like that was on the key? That is the key. The key is a pin. <laughs> Maybe you better make Latrivia a cup of hot tea, Molly. I don't want a cup of tea. I just want to find my tea. I mean, my hot tea. No, I don't either. Now, I now, mean, now, hot... now, let's not all get excited, Mr. Mayor. I'm sure that we'll find your little pin with the key still on it, and when we do... But, Mrs. McGee, there is no key. It's just a pin. They just call it a key. Well, if you got to unpin it every time you want to unlock the clubhouse, The clubhouse hasn't any doors. There isn't any clubhouse. The key doesn't unlock anything because it isn't the key. It's a pin. I just wear it. Why? Because I belong to Phi Beta Kappa. Then why don't they give you a little button that says so? Because the symbol of membership... Never mind. I'm going to turn in my resignation today. I'm going to join the elves. Boy, is he dumb. You know, he wouldn't be if he'd spend more time studying in college instead of running around with those sorority fellas. Well, i got to get back to my song. Now, let me see. Look, McGee, I've got an idea. What? Mr. Wimple is a poet. Say, why don't you get him to help you with the words to your song? Oh, that's a great thought, Molly. Come on, let's go. I'll get Billy Mills to write the music and Wimple to write the words. 
Well, what'll you do? What'll I do? It's my title, ain't it? Come on, let's go. Over to Mills. 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 spring day, isn't it, dearie? Now, aren't you glad I made you walk? No. I still think we should have hitched up Lillian to the sulky and drove over to Billy's house. <laughs> no. No, it was too soon after Lillian's lunch. She was taking her nap. <laughs> All that nag does is eat and sleep. Besides, she's getting too fat, Molly. She's not fat. She's just filling out. Hmm. Maybe so. But she's the first horse I ever saw with a double chin. Oh, look, McGee. Here comes Abigail Luffington. Correction. Lillian is the second horse I ever saw with a double chin. <laughs> Now, listen, Abigail hasn't got a double chin, McGee. She's just got a loose neck. <laughs> loose neck and a tight fist. She's the most... Oh, hello, Abigail, darling. So nice to see you. Oh, how do you do, Mrs. McGee? And Mr. McGee. Hi, Uppie. Say, we don't often see you walking, Abigail. Where's your limousine? Oh, I'm economizing on tires, my dear. Ah, good for you, Uppie. I always was a great walker myself. Why, when I was a kid, I used to walk nine miles to school every day. Go on. It was only three miles, McGee. I know, but they always sent me back home from my arithmetic book. <laughs> I've made three trips. Well, what did a future songwriter like you want to waste his time on arithmetic for anyway? Well, that's what I always tried to tell my teacher, Miss Fiditch. I says, Miss Fiditch, I says... Songwriter! Oh, you dear boy! Don't tell me you've added songwriting to your other accomplishments. What other accomplishments? <laughs> <laughs> Name three, Abigail. Okay, okay, scoff if you want to. Deride. But you'll change your mind when you hear my song played on every radio station in the country. And maybe even one or two in the city. <laughs> <laughs> McGee's writing a song called The War Stamp Stomp, Abigail. Oh, how splendid, and what a thrilling title. Yeah. Oh, I do hope it will be a success, Mr. McGee. Although, uh... Although what? Well, I, I just can't help remembering what a disappointment my nephew had. He was a musician, too. What happened to him? Lose a button off his bolero? <laughs> no. 
No, he wrote a little thing which even now is played on hundreds of radio stations every day. And the poor lad never collected a dollar. Oh, what kind of a song is it, Abigail? Well, the name of it is Bong Bong Bong. Bong Bong Bong. That's cute. How does the music go? Oh, it goes like this. A bong, a bong, a bong. Heavenly days, did your nephew write that? Oh, indeed he did. <laughs> oh, well, I, I must be getting along. So you've decided to walk and save your tires, eh, Abby? Oh, yes, yes. I walk all the way down to the Bondan department store nearly every day. Oh, and all the way back, too? <laughs> oh, no, no, that would be too much, I'm afraid. <laughs> so my chauffeur meets me with a car and drives me home. <laughs> I just know you're destined to be another Rinsky coffee cup. Uh, goodbye. Rinsky, let's so what is she? What's the matter, McGee? What are you muttering about? You heard what that old moose said, didn't you? <laughs> said I was going to be a Ripsky Korskakoff. Well? Well, what is a Ripsky Korskakoff? Well, I think they're a couple of songwriters. <laughs> they can't amount to much. You never hear any of their stuff in the job boxes. <laughs> Besides, I can't... Well, hello there, folks. Where are you going? Hello, Mr. Wilcox. Hi, Harlow. We're on our way over to Billy Mills' house. I hope he's home. Oh, he is. I saw his galoshes on the front porch. Oh. oh. Well, how do you know they're Billy's. He had him on. <laughs> you going over there for dinner? No, I'm writing a song, Harlow. Billy's doing the score. Well, what kind of a song is it? Popular? Very. At least with McGee. <laughs> he calls it the War Stamp Stomp, Mr. Wilcox. Is that a title or ain't it, Harlow? Or maybe you aren't any judge. Sure, I'm a judge. I'm a composer myself, in a way. Oh, really, Mr. Wilcox? What songs have you written? Oh, nothing very famous, I guess, Molly. But I did one I rather liked. It goes... Now is the time to protect and preserve the things you own and cut expenses to the bone. Mm, cute lyrics. Johnson's wax on your floors, furniture, woodwork, windowsills, lampshades will not only preserve and protect, but beautify as well. It's swell. Cuts housework to a minimum and saves you time and work. I'd be a jerk if I didn't tell you to use Johnson's wax and take a rest. It's the best. And on your kitchen floor, use Johnson's self-polishing glow coat. Just make a note. It's so easy. Looks so pleasy. Pour it out and spread it around. Let it dry and I'll be bound. Your linoleum looks like new. What a view. Oh, boy. What a joy. Floy, floy. Moy, moy. Oh, here, here. We have the idea, Mr. Wilcox. We got an idea of the words, Harlow. Now, how about the tune? Oh, I don't need one. Just say Johnson's Wax to a housewife. That's music to her ears. Good luck, pal. (laughs) (laughs) What a songwriter. Old Jerome Corn himself. Another Minsky Corsicon. (laughs) Say, isn't this Billy Mills' house, McGee? Oh, yeah. Oh, come on. Hi, Skimp. Hello, Mom. Come on in. Hi. <laughs> this is an unexpected pleasure. Well, I thought you knew we were coming. Well, I knew February was coming. I didn't know you were, Mom. Makes it a pleasure. Park your hat, Pat. Let me take the sable, Mabel. <laughs> <laughs> now, you're really jiving this afternoon, Billy. Yes, I'm sending, Skimp. How's everything? Just fine, Billy. How's my pal, Uncle Dennis? Oh, same as ever. He is, huh? Too bad. You know, we've been trying to give him some good advice, but he wouldn't take it. What advice, Mom? She told him he ought to give up the little brown jugs till we lick those little yellow mugs. 
Uncle Dennis. Well, he'd make a great air raid, Warden. Out all night anyway. <laughs> now, listen, you never mind, Uncle Dennis. Did you write some music for McGee, Billy? Well, I'm working on it, Mom. Got the manuscript right here. Oh, so... How's it look to you, dearie? Now, let me study it a minute, Mom. I mean, Molly. <laughs> you seem kind of doubtful about the opening chord, Billy. What you mean? You've got a question mark in front of it. That's a treble clef. Oh. Oh, yeah. Treble clef. <laughs> See this thing here, Molly? Yeah. Treble clef. <laughs> Wonderful thing to have in a song, too. Some of our best music has got treble clefs in it. <laughs> Don't tell me. What'll they think of next? Is this finished, Billy? No, I had a little difficulty about the piano. Difficulty? Yes, man from the finance company. <laughs> I hurt my hand, too. Ah, slugged a guy. Who? Man from the finance company. <laughs> well, that's tough, Billy. But when, when do you think you can finish it? I kind of promised the manager of the radio station he could have it at 6 o'clock tonight. I'll have it done, Skim. How about the lyrics? Well, Mr. Wimple is going to do the lyrics, Mr. Mills. Yeah, and when he gets the words done and you finish the music, Billy, I got a hunch that this is going to be the best song I ever wrote. <laughs> hey, that reminds me, I better call Wimple and see how he's getting along. Where's your phone, Billy? Uh, you see that brown cord on the floor over there? Yeah. Well, follow that. There's a lamp on the end of it. Try the black cord. <laughs> Never mind tracing it down with you. Here's the phone right here. Let me take it. Thanks. <clears throat> Hello, operator. Give me Wistful Vista 72. Oh, is that you, Mert? Oh. <laughs> How's every little thing, Mert? It is, eh? What say, Mert? Your brother shot it out with the cops, eh? Oh, heavenly days, McGee. What happened? Mert's baby needed a bottle of milk in the middle of the night, and she called her brother at the creamery, and he shot it out with the cops. <laughs> What's that, Mert? Oh, you have. Oh, thanks. Hello, is this Wallace Wimple? Hey, what's the matter, Wimp? You got a cold? Your voice is deeper than usual. Huh? Huh? Oh, oh excuse me, Mrs. Wimple. <laughs> May I speak to Wallace? Thanks. Wimple started the lyrics yet, Mom? Uh, yes, McGee called him earlier today, and he said... Is that you, Wimple? This is McGee. Yeah, look. Billy Mills is nearly finished with the music. Suppose you get them words done and meet me at the radio station about 5.45. The King's Men sing Lanigan's Shillelagh. His name was Timothy Lanigan, he came from County Clark. Cause on the 17th of March he landed in New York. The crowds were down to meet the boat, there wasn't room to stand. Sure, there was Timothy Lanigan, a looking mighty grand. Oh, he carried his old shillelagh in his hand. Yes, he carried it all the way from Ireland. As he raised his old coffin and sang the wedding of the green. Sure, he carried his old shillelagh in his hand. I've got a job to do, I'm on the trail now Of the guy who threw the overalls in Mrs. Murphy's chow And if I ever find him, there will be an awful row So he carries me old shillelagh in me hand And all over the USA, the people all got out of his way For he carried his old shillelagh in his hand One day while Timothy Lanigan was leaving his hotel He heard a step behind him and a voice he knew so well He whirled around to take a look and there upon the stoop Was the man who threw the overalls in Mrs. Murphy's soup And he 
carried a big shillelagh in his hand. In his hand, yes, he carried a big shillelagh in his hand. In his hand, he was big he was tall and he was looking for a brawl. And he carried a big shillelagh in his hand. Their old shillelaghs and they circled all about Through the afternoon they battled and they still were feeling stout But when the moon began to rise they knocked each other out And they fell with their shillelaghs in their hand Oh, they both woke up together and they called the fight a draw Then Timothy discovered he'd been fighting with his paw Said Lanigan the senior, I'll confess it to you now I'm the mink who threw the overalls and Mrs. Murphy's chow So, oh, 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 they carried their old shillelaghs in their hand, and the last we heard they're back in Ireland, and they're looking for a brawl any time or place at all, for they carry their old ladies in their hand. Where did you tell Mr. Wimple you'd meet him, McGee? Uh, right here at the reception desk. Uh, hey, bud. Uh, yes, sir? I got an appointment to meet a guy here in a few minutes. Do so you mind if we hang around? Oh, not at all, sir. Uh, would you care to see a broadcast while you wait? Oh, my. It might be fun, McGee. What's on now, sir? Well, in five minutes, we have Uncle Bunny and his CP time tales. <laughs> and uh, then at 6.30, a news broadcast by Herman Sherman, the commentator who sees all, knows all, and guesses very badly. <laughs> and then at 6.45... Skip the schedule, bud. Skip the schedule. Thanks, anyway, but... I don't think we got time to... Oh, here he comes. Hey, Wimp! Here we are. Hello, Mr. Wimple. Hello, folks. <laughs> How'd you get along with my song, Wimp? Oh, quite well, Mr. McGee, considering. Considering what, Mr. Wimple? Well, I had her stop every now and then and help Sweetie Face. Oh. She was practicing the shot put for the police games next month. Hmm. Practicing the shot put? How could you help her do that? <laughs> she didn't want to get the floor all dented up, so I had to stand across the room and catch the shot when she threw it. <laughs> my goodness. The woman is a human cannon. I'd like to send her away to General MacArthur. Or somebody. Well, uh, did you get the song done, Mr. Wimple? Yes, I did, Mrs. McGee. And when I got started on the lyrics, Sweetie Face thought I was a regular cold party. Hmm. She did, eh? I guess so. Anyway, she kept me running down to the cellar for more coal for the fireplace. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hear your words for the song, Mr. Wimple. All righty. <clears throat> The war stamp stamp. Boy, what a title. Here's the chorus. Dig down deep into your rampers. Lay it on the line, you stampers. For the right, for right is might. Get into it. Don't be tight. And stamp, stamp. The war stamp stamp. <laughs> Mr. Wimple. That's terrific, Wimp. Much obliged. Now, the second chorus goes, Oh, there's men behind the men behind the guns to lick the Jappies and the ITs and the Huns. So when uh, you... Hold it, uh, Wimp. Hold it. That's great. Much obliged. Now, you wait out here and I'll let you know what happens. Come on, Molly. Where, McGee? I got to show this song to the manager. Uh, hey, bud, is Mr. Strokes in his office? Uh, just a moment, sir. I'll see. Yes, sir, he is. Uh, whom shall I say wants to see him, sir? Uh, Fibber McGee, the songwriter. Tell him it's about that song I wrote that I spoke to him about over the phone. Yes, sir. Uh, extension 867J, please. Mr. Strotes, uh, there's a Mr. McGee here who says... Oh, sir? Well, he's uh, short and heavy set, and... Uh, sir? Oh, but he says he's already spoken to you about... Sir? No, but... He, uh, sir? Oh, I'm sorry, sir, but I already told him you were in, and he... Sir? Oh, yes, sir. 
you may go in, Mr. McGee. Mr. Stroat said he was very anxious to see you. Third door to your left. Thanks very much. Hot dog. What did I tell you, Molly? These guys are hungry for new talent. Yeah, that's what the missionary said when the cannibals put the kettle on. <laughs> I bet they offer me a job on the staff here. Maybe head of the music department. They are... Oh, here we are. Hi, Strozzi, old man. I'm McGee, the songwriter. This is my wife, Molly. How do you do, I'm sure. Good day. McGee, somebody called me earlier today and said that you were the author of the greatest song ever written. Uh, that was me, Chief. Uh, now, look. <laughs> Here's the song. I call it The War Stamp Stomp. Now, just look the it over. The War Stamp Stomp. Isn't that a wonderful title? It certainly is. It's an inspiration. That's what it is, Strokes. Just popped into my head one morning and I says to myself, boy, is that a title. Then I get uh, right Wait up. a minute, McGee. Hmm? Do you ever listen to station M-E-O-W? Oh, say, he listens every night. Yeah, that's why I come to you. My favorite radio station. Now, look, Strokes, you publish this on a royalty basis and I'll... What's that? Publish it. Why, you little pirate. Huh? Why, what's the matter? We've been featuring a song called The War Stamp Stomp over this station for two weeks. You've been... Oh, oh that's where I heard it. <laughs> a few things finished with chromium. If you think of your own home for a moment, you'll remember those towel bars and perhaps other fixtures in the bathroom and kitchen. Possibly some chromium chairs or tables, not to forget the trim on your automobile. You know, of course, that chromium is scarce at present and should be protected. But do you know the easy, inexpensive way to protect it? Yes, with that same genuine Johnson's Wax you use to protect and beautify your floors, furniture, and woodwork. Apply Johnson's Wax, either paste, liquid, or cream, the same as you do on wood surfaces. The wax forms a protective shield that guards the chromium against the corrosive action of weather and fingerprints, also against minor scratches. You'll notice, too, how the wax finish adds a soft beauty to the metal itself. Now, before another day passes, protect all chromium surfaces in your home with genuine Johnson's Wax. Sorry about your song, McGee. I really thought you had something there. Yeah, me too. I still think my song was better than the one they've been playing. It had more zing, more patriotic oomph. Yes, sir. And I'll bet if you ever published it and everybody started singing it, it would be an awful pain in the neck to Berlin. Berlin, Germany? No, Berlin, Irving. Oh. <laughs> Good night. Good night, all. <laughs> This is Harlow Wilcox, speaking for the makers of Johnson's Wax Finishes for Home and Industry, inviting you to be with us again next Tuesday night. Good night. Time now for Inner Sanctum on Theater of the Mind and the episode Death Demon. 
Sanctum Mysteries. Brought to you by Bromo Seltzer. Good evening, friends of the Inner Sanctum. This is your host inviting you through the gory portals of the squeaking door for another soiree with some super-duper supernatural personality. And if you've never met a super-duper supernatural personality, aren't you the lucky one? Because they're devitalized people, usually somewhat dead, with transparent complexions and morbid imaginations. Would you like to become one? You won't have to worry about the high cost of living. And you'll never have to worry about dying, because once you're dead, that little matter will take care of itself. <laughs> but, uh, why don't I become one? I've got news for you. I am. <laughs> Tonight's Inner Sanctum Mystery, Death Demon, was written by Milton Lewis and stars Everett Sloan in the role of Howard with Anne Seymour as Gilda. All right, friend. Let's stop all this ghoulishness and let's get grim. Mm-hmm. Now remember our rule. Don't jump out of the window unless it's open. <laughs> Ready now. Then listen as Howard Ryan tells us his strange story. The wind was rising when I returned to Greystone Farms late that night. The house with its Victorian gables and towers looked like a clawing hand reaching into the scudding clouds. I went directly to my room, even though the living room was lit up. I had no desire to see my stepmother or the man she had married. The moment I got into my room and turned on the light, I gasped. My things had been disturbed. Many of them were gone. I ran down to the living room. Come in, Howard. We want to talk to you. I looked at this young woman, not more than ten years older than myself, whom I called Mother. In the flickering firelight, she looked more beautiful than ever. But he was there, too. And I felt his voice cut across the room. You needn't stare at her like that, Howard. She didn't take those things out of your room. Who did, sir? I did. Please stop this absurd trick of calling me sir. Do you like it or not? I'm your stepfather. I'm sorry, sir, but my manner of addressing you is the politest I could think of. Please, Howard. Where are the things you took out of my room, sir? Here. You had no right to take them. I told him to. You? For your own good, Howard. We were worried about you. Were you really? You've been ill. You know what the doctor said. What we found in your room justified all our fears. How long have you been reading these... these horrid books? Ever since my father was murdered. What do you expect to get out of them? Perhaps, sir. I expected to find some way of reaching my father. You know that's nonsense. Is it? Books on witchcraft. Necromancy. Morbid rubbish. I gave you credit for more intelligence, Howard. This brooding about your father might destroy your mind. And why should you care about that, Mother? Because, because, well, I'm fond of you, Howard. I'm not your real mother, I know, but I tried to be one to you when your father was alive. 
I want to help you now. Help? Then why don't you try to find out who murdered my father two years ago? The police are doing everything they can. You think I've stopped trying? Yes, Mother. I don't believe you even care who murdered your former husband. All you care about is him. Now, see here, Howard. It's true. I know it. I'm not a fool. The only reason you permit me to stay in this house is because my father's will compelled you to take care of me, or you wouldn't have a penny of income. Howard, you're hysterical. Can't you see what these books have done to you? Perhaps you'd like to see what they've done for me, sir. What are you talking about? This morbid nonsense. What if I tell you that some of those things are true? They can't be. Someday I'll be able to talk to my father and find out who murdered him in his sleep. Perhaps I might be able to do it right now. Right now? You're frightened? You wouldn't like to see him again. This man you loved so deeply that you remarried a year after his death. Stop it, Howard. Stop it. And you're frightened too, aren't you, sir? And with good reason. I don't think you'd care to meet this man whose wife you stole. Howard. Would you like to see him? I'm not afraid. Then perhaps I shall make him appear. What are you saying, Howard? Do you know where I was all day, Mother? At my father's grave. And look, this earth. I brought some of it back. This earth that's now mingled with his remains. Listen. That's Dane. My father's dog. Animals know when the dead are near. This time it will work, I'm sure. The signs are right. What are you going to do? Throw this earth into the fire and follow an ancient ritual to set loose the chained spirits of the dead. There! How did you see how the flames leap up, Mother? The lightning struck that tree and knocked a branch through the window. You're wrong. It's my father. Father! Where are you? believe me, but I knew that at that moment my father came back to this earth. They were terrified, both of them, though they tried not to show it. That night I went to my room, listened to the storm howl itself out, but there was no further sign of my father. I must have slept, perhaps dreamed. Because I heard a voice I hadn't heard in two years. I recognized it. Still thick with the accent he had acquired from his boyhood in Europe. My son. My son. Wake up and find the person who murdered me. Wake up, my son. Wake up. The next thing I knew, I was rubbing my eyes. My room was full of mist, tinted a strange yellow gold by the murky moonlight that filtered through the windows. My father's dog, Dane, was tugging at my legs. He was trying to lead me out of the room. I followed him through the halls of that huge silent house to my father's study. It had been locked up since he died, and no one ever used it since. But when I tried the handle this night... The door opened, as though being pulled.
pulled by some unknown force. Mist and moonlight crept into the study, lit the dust and cobwebs and shadowy furnishings with an eerie light. And then something crashed. A broken vase with a tiny key among its fragments lay on the floor. It might have been Dane who knocked over that vase, but I don't think so. I picked up the key. The moment I had it in my hand, I remembered a scene from my childhood. I had secretly observed my father remove a book from one of the cases, take out this tiny key and open a hidden panel in the bookcase. Like a man in a dream, I repeated the action. I removed the book, and there was the secret panel. I opened it with the key. There was nothing in it but a few large notebooks. I took them out, opened one, and by the flickering yellow light of my match... My father came back to me. In this journal, I record thoughts that if they remain unexpressed, might drive me mad. I know now that my wife, Gilda, is seeing another man. I know his name. Dale Barton. you want, Mother? Just to see you. I've been worried about you. Really? Why? You've been locked in this room for the last two days. Here, I have brought you some food. Thank you. Where is your husband? He had to drive to town. Howard, you can't go on like this. You love him very much, don't you? I wouldn't have married him if I did. You Love him more than you love my father? Please, there's no point in discussing this. Your father's dead, and that's all past. Not quite dead. In fact, he's very close to us at this moment. Close? Yes. So close that he can reach out and touch you. Howard, let go of my head. You don't believe me, Mother. This is all nonsense. Is it? What would you do if I told you that my father is holding your hand this very minute? What would you do if I told you that he has taken possession of my body? Howard, you're ill. You don't know what you're saying. Did you know Dale Barton before my father was murdered? No. I only met him after your father died. You lie. That's... That's his voice. You have been seeing Dale Barton for months. I know. I followed you. No. No. I talked to you about it the day before I died. You swore he meant nothing to you. Let go of me. Let go. Did you kill me? No. No. Answer me. Did you murder me? You once said you hated me. Let go of me. Please. You said you loved me even on the day I was murdered. You hated me. Did you murder me? Was it because of him? Tell me. Help me. He's going to murder me. Take you out of here. 
He led her out of the room while I lay on the floor. Had she murdered my father? Had he? I knew at last I had the means of finding out. There were thick vines outside my window, and late that night, as I had often done when I was a boy, I carefully, quietly climbed down them, stopping at a point outside their window. I clung to the wall like a bat, and I heard them talking. Did you hear his voice? You don't actually believe. I don't know what to believe. He looks so much like his father. When he sees me, he spoke to me. It was his father. Julie, you're being foolish about this. Am I? On the day William was murdered, Howard was away at college. How could he have known what we talked about? And he did know. That boy seemed to know every word. That boy, uh, Where is he, his father? Shielder, do you know what you're saying? Yes. This isn't an ordinary thing. There's nothing you can do about it. Oh, yes, there is. I climbed back to my room to think. I dared not go to sleep because I knew my father had been murdered in his sleep. And if they had murdered him, they'd certainly have an excellent reason to kill me. I thought of running away, but then I would never find out. I know now why I couldn't run away. My father within me was holding me there. I lay down on my bed to rest. And then suddenly, I found myself dreaming. Dreaming that a pair of powerful hands were clutching at my throat. I struggled, gasped for breath, tried to scream. I was being murdered in my sleep just as my father was. I tore at those iron fingers, clawed at those hands that were cutting off my life. And then I opened my eyes and discovered that it was not a nightmare. I hadn't been dreaming. It was real. I was being murdered. Well, friend, your breathing spell is over. Now it's time to lose your breath again, so let's get back to our story. Now, what did we do with the call? Oh, yes. We were interrupted while we were making one. And if you remember, the corpse belonged to Howard Ryan, the young man who was telling us this story. He had just discovered that his dream had come true, and someone was choking him to death. That's a nice way to wake up from sleep, isn't it? But let's have Howard tell us what happened. My eyes focused through the haze, and I recognized Dale, my stepfather. They were his hands that were around my neck. Suddenly I heard Dale bark, and the door flew open, and like a writhing cannon shell, the dog flew through the air at the throat of my stepfather. A moment later, I felt his hands release me as he shouted. Stop him! Go on, Howard! For a moment, I did nothing. I knew I wanted him to die. But I still wasn't sure if he had killed my father. I suppose I was a fool, but I yelled, Dane, stop it! Down, Dane, down! Here, Dane, come here. Who opened the door? I want to get out of here. Not yet. Why? Are you going to turn that dog loose on me again? Perhaps. You want to kill me? You tried to kill me. Kill you if you lost your mind completely. I woke up with your hands around my throat. You're insane. I was trying to pick you up from the floor. You're lying. I'm not. I heard you moaning and screaming, and I came up to see what was wrong. I found you on the floor. You were having a nightmare. Was I? Of course. Why should I want to kill you? Because I may find out 
how you murdered my father. What he said could have been true. I had had little sleep for a long time, and his attack on me could have been a nightmare. I could never be certain. But to protect myself, I kept a gun with me at all times. I read and reread the journals of my father, which I had found. More and more often, it was his voice that came out of my mouth, his thoughts that filled my mind. And then came the night when I found out the truth. Good evening, Howard. What are you doing in my room, sir? I came to have a talk with you. Dane! Dane! There's no use calling for your dog. You'll never see him again. What did you do with him? That should have been done long ago. What? What have you got there? A knife. It's quite sharp. Quite suited to the purpose I intended for. You came to kill me. Did my mother put you up to this? No. As a matter of fact, your stepmother is in town right now. We two are quite alone. I see. You've always hated me, haven't you, Howard? Yes, sir. I suppose you can't help it. Your stepmother's a very beautiful woman. She has nothing to do with us. Makes very little difference. The fact of the matter is that you become dangerously psychopathic. I want you to know that I've taken steps to have you confined. Oh, so that's the game. Well, sir, you're going to kill me and tell the authorities you were protecting yourself from a homicidal maniac. I'm glad you're aware of your disadvantages. But you're not aware of yours. A gun. Did you murder my father? You're going to... Did you kill me? Oh. Who's speaking? Answer me. Did you murder me? Who are you? What are you? Answer me. I'll answer you. I'll kill you. Don't. Oh. Oh. Speak before you die. Did you murder me in my sleep? I have got to know. Now. Murder you. Did you... Did you? But he never spoke again. My father, using my body, had murdered him. Howard, have you seen Dale? Yes, Mother. Where is he? Come in. He's in here. Howard, you... You murdered him? Yes, when he tried to throw that knife at me, you see he still has it in his hand. Howard! Don't! Try to get away. Let me out of here. No, Mother. And don't call me Mother. You're no son of mine. You're a murderer. Yes, Mother, but less of a murderer than you are. At least I killed in self-defense. Not when my victim was asleep, helpless, and unaware of danger. Let me out of here. No, you're going to stay. Yes, this gun. The same gun I used to murder your husband. Stay just where you are. Why? Because I want you to see this man who succeeded my father. This creature whom you love. Look at him there, mother. Twisted grotesquely into the whining coward he proved himself to be in death. Look at him. This is the man you gave up my father for. This is the man you committed murder for. Let me go. Now look. This is the man who used his last breath to betray you. Betray me? Yes. How? He said that you killed my father. I? Yes. 
It's a lie. Is it, Gilda? William. Is it? Yes, I... I didn't murder you. I mean to know the truth. Do not think this is some trick played by my son. I am William. I know things which only you and I in all the world know. Stop it. Tell me the truth. Don't point that gun at me. Your only chance is to tell me the truth. Will you... Will you let me live? Depend on what you tell me. Then why should I tell you? Because I am your husband, who once loved and trusted you, Vilda. Tell me. Tell me now, or you will die. Very well. I... I did it. I committed the murder. That's what you wanted to hear, isn't it? That's what you wanted me to tell you, isn't it? It's what I wanted to know. What are you going to do? What do you think I should do? Let, let me live. I've loved you. I've, I've always loved you. It, it wasn't my fault. He put me up to it. Now that he's dead, I, I realize what I've done. Do you? Yes. Let me live. Let me live. Perhaps I shall, Mother. Howard. Oh, you. You understand, don't you? It's just as it happened with you and your father. So it happened with Dale and myself. You. You won't do anything to me, will you? I'm not your real mother, I know, but, but I have loved you, Howard. You know I've loved you. And I still love you. Tell me one thing. Was he as guilty as you? Yes. Yes, it, it was really all his fault. Then come with me, Gilda. We're going to the police. And that's what happened, Inspector. She finally confessed. And I brought her here. Have you anything to say, ma'am? Yes, Inspector. Well? Everything I told my stepson, every word of my confession, was a lie. Mother! This boy's insane. He's been out of his mind ever since his father was murdered. I only made that confession to humor him and save my life. And I can prove what I say. More than one doctor has found him unbalanced. I believe you, ma'am. Inspector, you... You... You can't! This woman murdered my father! She told me! We know who murdered your father, son. It was not this woman. I picked up a man yesterday. He confessed. Gave us all the details. They all checked with the evidence. His name is Ralph Stone. Criminal with a long record. And he murdered your father for money. Then... Then it wasn't my mother. No, it wasn't your stepmother, no. It was her husband, Dale Burton. We learned that he hired this Ralph Stone to commit the murder. Then I was right. My father knew what he was doing when he made me pull that trigger. I wonder, son. Because you're under arrest for murder. I kept telling them that I didn't murder Dale Barton. I didn't pull that trigger. It, it was my father who murdered him. They don't believe me. But it has to be right, you see. How could father have known Dale was guilty without supernatural knowledge? My father still lives inside of me. And sometimes he talks. The 
<laughs> well, friend, there's nothing wrong with little old Howard. Just a little bit nuts, but who isn't? Hmm? And how'd you like someone to possess you someday? Just think, you could lead a double life for the price of a single. In fact, you may be able to save money because, as everybody knows, two can live cheaper than one. Which brings us to the moral of tonight's story, taken from the croonings of Nature Girl, who warbles. Don't drop dead except in bed, otherwise you can break your head. <laughs> It's time to close that squeaking door for another seven-day rest. Until next week at this time, when Bromo Seltzer brings you another Inner Sanctum Mystery, directed by Hyman Brown. Oh, by the way, this month's Inner Sanctum Mystery novel is Report for a Corpse, by Henry King. Next week's tale is titled, Death is a Magician. A guy loses his girl, loses his mind and meets a magician named Marco. Now, Marco makes an easy mark of our hero, and in turn, our hero uses Marco for target practice in a marathon murder. Marco, you see, just won't stay dead. <laughs> John Scramble. Cheers next Monday, friends, and we guarantee to scramble you some, too. Until then. Good night, pleasant dreams. <laughs> this is Dwight Weist inviting you to tune in again next Monday at the same time to Inner Sanctum, which is brought to you for your entertainment every Monday right through the summer by... Thanks for listening. Tomorrow night, it's Our Miss Brooks, followed by Nero Wolf. Thanks to Joel Schoenwell and Paul Stringer for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.